If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Thank you very much, session on Mind, Myth and Madness. Um, the theme of our debate. From schizophrenia to depression, we assume our psychiatric diagnoses are real. But as the mental health epidemic turns global, some say the categories now seem like the cause. And is it time we abandon our biological account of mental illness? Or is the best strategy still the one we've got? Now, we couldn't have with us a more distinguished cast of three eminent professors, and I shall introduce them. Um, first of all, we have here Richard Bentall, who is Professor of Psychology at the University of Liverpool, author of Madness Explained and Doctoring the Mind. <coughs> and he proposed in an essay in 1992 that happiness could be classified as a psychiatric disorder. Uh, to prove the point that values influence what we categorise as psychiatric disorders. On my left here, Simon Baron-Cohen, Professor of Psychology at the University of Cambridge. Uh, his books include Science of Evil, Essential Difference. He's uh, a world-leading expert on autism, where his theories, amongst other things, may explain why scientists are more likely to show signs of autism. I didn't know. And we also have uh, Professor Dinesh Bugra, who is president of the World Psychiatric Association, professor of mental health at King's College London's Institute of Psychiatry, Maudsley, and is well known as a commentator on these issues. No doubt you've read him in The Guardian, The Times, and many other places. And um, we're going to start off with Richard, who is going to, as it were, sort of propose the motion. Is it time to abandon our biological account of mental illness? So I think I'll probably best start by saying that I am actually not uh, hostile to the idea that biological processes are involved in mental health. We're all bi biological organisms, so of course that's the case. I actually do some biological research myself with neuroimaging. Uh, but uh, I think the 
problem is an in, uh, exclusive uh, focus on uh, biological approaches. So there's a number of things which need to be said about the limitations of the biological approaches that it's normally thought of. First of all, that the diagnostic categories which are widely used today, such as schizophrenia, um, actually have no reality, uh, either at a biological level or at any other level, actually. Um, they're basically being drawn up by committees of mental health experts uh, sitting in smoke-filled rooms, and they're not based on research as such. So, for example, an interest, you know, one interesting factoid about this area is if we look at the genetics, we find that the genetics does not fit these models at all. It isn't the case that there is a genetic risk of schizophrenia. There is a genetic risk of mental illness, but it's very non-specific. It applies a across a range of different diagnoses. There are no genes for schizophrenia as such. If uh, were, they would have been found now. A second limitation is that we must remember that we are also social organisms. We live in a social environment, and that environment changes our brain. So there's really good evidence that, for example, that people who've experienced trauma in early life, their brains look different than people who've not had traumatic experiences. And curiously enough, the changes we see, a lot of those changes actually match the kind of changes w uh, which we see in the brains of people with psychosis, with severe mental illness. And linked to that, we actually have now a lot of evidence that life adversity has an effect on the development of mental health and mental ill health, both common psychiatric problems and severe psychiatric problems. My own research has been looking at things like uh, childhood sexual abuse, which massively increases the risk of severe mental illness. Um, but there are many other factors which are known to be important in increasing the risk of mental illness. Uh, it's great to be sitting next to Polly here, who I know has written about inequality. We know there's a lot of evidence which shows that inequality is something which is linked to severe mental illness. So being a poor person, if you grow up in a poor family, you have an increased risk, but you have an especially increased risk if you're poor, living in a poor family surrounded by rich families. So there are a whole range of social factors which are very important and they impact on the brain. And finally, just one point, if we focus exclusively on biological factors, we miss many things we can do to improve uh, the mental health of people. Um, you could have an army of psychologists and, clinical psych uh, and psychiatrists and you know, in some ways that would be a good thing to help people who'd already got mental illness, but if you want to stop mental illness, you need to do something about the world. You need to do something about inequality, for example. You need to do something about the way that children are brought up. And the, the problem with the biological focus in mental illness is it takes our gaze away from these causes, these drivers of mental Ill health. What we need is a, a discipline of public mental health, which doesn't really exist at the moment. And we need to figure out how to fix the world in order to make populations mentally healthier. Um, well, I, I agree with a lot that Richard says. Um, so my starting point is that biology is uh, an important contributor to how the mind works. And uh, my own field is in um, autism, children and adults with autism. And at the moment, we're studying um, families uh, that have many children with autism. So in one family, uh, we've found examples of this. You, you might find a mother with six children on the spectrum. So that's telling us that our genes are involved. It's very likely, and we're going to focus our efforts to identify genes by looking at these really unusual families 
where something is, is going on within the family. But I don't want, to, um, want you to go away with the idea that biology and genetics um, can explain everything. And this is really the point of agreement with Richard. I think social and cultural factors are just as important. So I would just pick out a few examples, some of which uh, Richard's already raised. Um, uh, one, one social factor I would really single out is social isolation. There's plenty of evidence that if you're isolated, you're more likely to become depressed. So that's nothing to do with your, with your biology. It's to do with your social networks and social support. A second example, uh, again, Richard mentioned, is trauma. Um, you know, trauma is not good for your mental health. And if you look at people who end up with a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, these are individuals, um, mostly women, who have trouble regulating their emotions and trusting other people. If you look back at their childhoods, some 80% of them have experienced child abuse or neglect. So that's telling us that early experience is really important for later adult mental health. Um, I've now touched on the, the whole topic of early experience, and many of you know about the concept of attachment and secure attachment between an infant and a parent. And decades of research are really supporting the idea that the security of attachment between an infant and a parent really predicts later mental health. So if you don't have the opportunity, for whatever reason, to, fo to form a secure attachment with a caregiver, you're less likely to be able to trust other people and be prone to experiences like paranoia, but you're also less likely to develop self-esteem, self-confidence, um, and all the protective and resilient factors that are going to um, protect you as you go through adversity in life. So some people think of early attachment, which is, which is really a social experience, as uh, almost an inner pot of gold that you carry with you. As you face challenges, you can either um, overcome them or become a victim of them. Um, the other last couple of points in this introduction is I want to really um, highlight a fairly new concept, which is about individual differences. And uh, in my field, it's called neurodiversity, that there isn't a single way to be normal. And effectively, we're throwing out the old category of normal that we used to think of pathology and normality. And I think that the new way of thinking, this, this uh, framework of neurodiversity, is that there are many ways to be normal. Um, you know, we could take a very simple example, like some people are right-handed and some people are left-handed, and it's not that one is normal and, and the other is pathological. These are just different ways of developing. And in my own field of autism, we're increasingly seeing this as not necessarily a sign of pathology, it's a sign of difference, that some children are born processing information in a different way, perceiving the world in a different way. We could focus on the things that they have difficulty with, because it does lead to disability in certain environments. Or we could focus on the things that they can do very well, the positive aspects of autism. And they include, for example, being able to attend to details sometimes better than the rest of us, being able to spot patterns uh, to a higher level than the rest of us. And in the right environments, the person doesn't seem disabled. They might even seem gifted. 
So this, uh, this whole way of thinking about variation in the population, that there are many routes to adulthood and we should um, make space for variation is also an important message. And I think this kind of links to my last point, which is about respect. When we talk about people with mental illnesses, we're effectively pathologizing them, we're saying there's something wrong with them, and the international classification systems that psychiatry has produced talks about mental disorders or mental diseases. So we're really using this medical model which says there's something wrong with you. If we accept that there, you know, there's a range of experience in the population, some people may hear voices, some people may be sociable or less sociable, but this is all part of the normal range, what we start to do is respect individual differences. We make people feel that they're not broken or dysfunctional, but just different. And a lot about mental health is feeling included, feeling respected, and being given dignity. Uh, I agree with a lot of what Richard and Simon have already said. The issue here is, do we abandon biology altogether? And I would argue not. We don't have all the answers. We haven't got as far as we should have, could have, um, given the right circumstances. Let me give you sort of two or three examples. If you uh, are medically ill, your thyroid is not functioning and you become depressed, do we know for sure that there are not brain changes caused by low-functioning thyroid, which is causing the depression, or whether depression is a normal human emotional response? And I agree entirely that, you know, they were not smoke-filled rooms, Richard, where, you know, diagnoses were made. And, you know, people make their careers out of diagnosis. I don't have a problem with that. The issue really is how do we integrate biology and social factors? And both of you have touched upon that. And I think that's the bit which is the up-and-coming field of epigenetics, which is becoming really relevant because, you know, you know, the, in terms of that, you were talking about attachment patterns, Simon, the attachment patterns affect brain structures which affect brain functioning, and that goes on long term. So part of the agenda for the profession, psychology and psychiatry, and I agree with you, Richard, entirely, is about public mental health, and I think we need to get in there. The question is, can we then prevent all psychiatric disorders, or only some? Is some better than none? Or um, are we then looking at uh, issues related to um, you know, simple um, pathologies? And there are cultural differences, both in diagnosis and management, and how people perceive their emotional distress and where they see that they have to go. And yes, you know, I agree that you know, we are in serious danger of medicalizing normal human emotions, and we need to be very, very careful about that. And, you know, a prime example that I quite often use is abnormal grief reaction, which in Diagnostic Statistical Manual 5 um, is that if you're feeling, you know, after the death of a loved one, you feel depressed. But in Hindu cultures, when, you know, somebody dies, the cremation has to be within 24 hours, and then something on the third day, something on the seventh day, something on the 13th day, something on the 15th day, and you will not have a wedding or any celebration for 11 months. Now, is that abnormal grief reaction? You know, 
So I think that's the kind of thing that we need to be thinking about. Now, we don't know whether that abnormal grief reaction has a biological underpinning or not. But the, the point really is that we need to be very careful in that there are biological substrates. We don't understand the brain very well. We don't understand the structures. We don't understand the functioning. But that, unless proven otherwise, we can't say that the brain does not play a role in mental illness. The debate. Theme one. The first theme, the next theme that we're, which is really all of one theme, is are our diagnoses of mental illness real? I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this would say, but isn't this about not the abstract idea of what we label things or what's normal or what not, but whether, how much suffering somebody's doing? Can they live with the state that they're in? And at that point, don't you sort of diagnose it as something that needs to be cured and helped because they're not coping? It, it so hurts I, too I, much. I have absolutely no... But I agree with that completely. I mean, the, just to... I mean, and it connects to the thing I wanted to say in response to Dinesh, which is that, of course, the brain is involved in grief reactions. The brain is involved in absolutely everything which we do, think, feel. It's involved at every stage. Whether we call a particular reaction pathological or not depends on a lot of things, but basically it's by about values. Um, so, which is the reason why I wrote that paper, which I keep getting taunted about, about <laughs> happiness being a psychiatric disorder. No, I wasn't trying to turn a personal deficit into a dogma. <laughs> it was simply, I was trying to make the point that it's arbitrary to some extent what we regard as a psychiatric disorder. In the case of people who are happy, if you're very happy, you behave in some pretty irrational ways, say. And there's quite good evidence that moderately depressed people are actually a bit more realistic than people who are, <laughs> are, 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 are very happy. If you, if you, you know, it's true. And so, so why do we say that happiness is not a psychiatric disorder? It's because we actually can't like being happy. And you know, similarly, uh, what we don't like is being very distressed. And of course, if somebody is hearing voices and the voices are tormenting them, and some, a lot of people have voices, which people who hear hallucinated voices, they have voices which will abuse them and in, in say horrible things to them and so on, and people become very distressed, then of course we owe them some help. And, but it's our values which tell us to do that, not some diagnostic system. And, but on the other hand, if there's have somebody who has exactly the same kind of experiences but is not upset by them, which is true of a lot of people who hear voices, then fine, why, why we, then we don't help them. What determines whether we help people is whether they're in distress and whether they're able to cope with life. Yeah, I mean, well, now we've started talking about hearing voices. Um, obviously, we're talking about the experience of hearing voices when you're all alone. There's no one else present, but you uh, believe that you're hearing a voice as if somebody was in the room with you. And I think in the old days, when we heard about that symptom, it seemed extreme and it seemed um, so-called abnormal because that's, that's the way we were trained. We, and, uh, and it was only through population studies that made us realize, well, actually, this is much more common than we thought. And How actually, common? What's well, you know, I mean, Richard's work pioneered this, but, uh, you know, we used to be told that schizophrenia was about 1% of the population, so people hearing voices, which is one of the diagnostic symptoms, must be quite rare. But it turns out if you go out into the community, about 15% of the population might report hearing voices. You mean regularly or have done at some point? At some point in their lives. And the question really is, you know, do, when, you hear the, when you hear voices, do you react to it um, to, you know, in a way that it causes you suffering? 
Do you think there's something wrong with you? Uh, as Richard described, is the content of those voices actually something that really frightens you and upsets you? Uh, or can you just accept, this sometimes happens to me, this is part of my experience? And I think what's happened in the, in the shift is that uh, professionals, psychologists and psychiatrists, have been able to reassure patients. You know, the brain sometimes gives rise to these experiences. So clearly the brain is, is playing the role. And with neuroimaging, you can even see the language regions of the brain being active when a person reports that they're hearing a voice. But so does it make a difference whether the person thinks the voices are something outside themselves or whether they understand what's happening to them. Because I get lots of letters uh, yeah. from people saying, I know without a doubt that the government has implanted machines inside the walls of where I live and it is emitting these voices at me all the time, persecuting me. And I know the government or whoever is, or my doctor or somebody is up to it. Um, does it make a difference in terms of how you um, diagnose them, how rational they are in their approach to what they're experiencing. Right. So, I mean, I think now we're sort of moving away from voices to um, sort of paranoid delusional Well, it's about beliefs. whether diagnoses of mental illness yeah. are real. Yeah, know? and mm. I, th I think probably my w wh where I was going with this was, you know, if you can um, explain to the patient uh, that there's a variety of experience out there and if they can live with it, that might, to some extent, reduce the stress of the experience. For some people, that won't be sufficient. But you know, step one should just be to try and reassure the patient that, the, that these experiences are not uncommon. Um, sometimes they flare up, to use a more medical analogy, but they flare up at times of stress, um, and that you could be looking at how to manage stress, for example, rather than saying, um, you know, you're mad or crazy. So I think, I think it's about shifting the way we talk about these experiences. But, you know, there will be individuals who are really struggling and need help, and hopefully we'll get onto the topic about drugs, um, because the biological model of mental illness might, you know, you might um, think it's just a small step to go from, well, this is caused by your biology, so therefore the treatment should be biological. Let's get on to treatment. Sure. I think we're in danger of confusing two separate experiences. Um, clinicians, whether they're psychologists or psychiatrists or doctors, are trained to diagnose and deal with dis-ease, which is disease. Patients are much more interested in illness. What are the kind of social impact of um, their symptoms is? Whether you know, if you stopped a hundred patients in the clinic and said, right, you know, what do you uh, want or need? I bet you that medication will not be their number one choice. They would want accommodation, they would want employment, they would want jobs, they would want friendship. Medication would come somewhere else. We as clinicians are taught to diagnose and de deal with disease because that's pathology. The social experience gets lost. And I think that's part of the challenge for us to, and you, know, you kind of alluded to that, and you know, patients are more interested in you know, why is this happening or, you know, what can be done and where do I go with this? So what we need to be thinking about is that, you know, there may be biological substrates, but the social impact of those biological substrate of any distress or experience uh, will then lead to the patients or not individuals not functioning very well. So how do we deal with that? That's the challenge for the profession and it's not um, you know, um, 
human beings are biological animals, and equally we are social animals. And you know, to my mind, um, all psychiatry is social, one way or the other. Don't raise your eyebrows like that. <laughs> <don't you? laughs> um, I see what you mean. That, that you know, unfortunately, as doctors, you're not in a position to prescribe housing, jobs, friendships, and well, things I, I, that I people think, need yeah. of those kinds. But on the other hand, people quite need diagnoses either to tell their employer or uh, to tell the DWP so that they can get a benefit because they've got a diagnosed, diagnosable uh, disorder that makes it impossible for them to work, which the you know, job centres find it almost impossible to cope with you know, and throw them off benefits at the slightest thing because they kind of look all right. Um, so people do need those hands. So society seems to require that those handles are delivered by diagnosticians. But, uh, I think that you're absolutely spot on because what psychiatry needs is to renegotiate its contract with society. We need to understand what society sees as normal, deviant, abnormal, pathological. In a, at the moment, psychiatry is being pushed into a corner where all we are being asked to do is risk assessment and risk management. And I think that needs to change, both from the professional perspective and from the society's perspective, and say, guys, you can't do this. Yeah. So I very much hope that The Guardian I would take the lead on that. I wish you had the heft to do that and to get a grip on those, yeah. on those levers. It would make a lot of difference. I mean, we've stopped being advocates for our patients. And I think we do need to change our role and you know, stand up and say to Ian Duncan Smith and others that this is not acceptable. On, on this topic of... Uh, <laughs> on this topic of whether doctors and clinicians, all they can do is prescribe um, in a medical way, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's really only relates to a tiny percentage of what clinicians do. You know, clinicians can recommend social support and they can recommend befriending and mentoring and other kinds of social uh, in input. So, you know, I think that, I think that shift is also very and important. And you have it there at your disposal, do you? You, well, you no, have I mean, things you know, that I, you I can offer of that kind? I, well, th we can recommend. Um, whether the resources are there is, is much more of a, an issue about uh, the current economy. The National Health Service, as many people know, is in a dire situation. Um, I say that because I work in it. And, um, you know, we're struggling with smaller and smaller budgets. But we still have the aspiration to say the ideal pathway for this patient is not just to get their diagnosis, but to get social support after their diagnosis. It doesn't have to be... I mean, it doesn't have to be pharmacological. It could be social forms of support. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're still um, living with the sort of residue of so-called austerity, austerity cuts. But nevertheless, that shouldn't stop us lobbying for what we, uh, what we see would be an optimal service. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
theme two. Now, the second theme we've been prescribed is, is our biological account of mental illness failing us? Is it actually doing harm as well, opposed I mean, to not being the right thing? Uh, sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's harmful. In if you look in, you know, in terms of the global sort of outcomes, uh, certainly in my field, which is severe mental illness, people have a diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, so on. There's very little evidence of improved outcomes in the West from Victorian age, actually. There's certainly very good data going back to the Second World War before the invention of psychiatric drugs. And in terms of long-term outcome, there isn't any improvement. And that's in marked contrast to what we find in areas like cardiology, for You mean example. the drugs do no good? Well, they do good in the short term for some people. But in the long term, the evidence is that outcomes haven't improved. We're probably kinder to people with severe mental illness than we were in the 1940s. But in terms of improved outcomes, there's no evidence whatsoever. Does that <coughs> mean you wouldn't use drugs? No, it doesn't. It, it means that they're actually the, the answer is they're very overused. So if we take this particular uh, type of drug which is used very often with people with psychosis, they're the antipsychotic drugs. And uh, they've become the mainstay of psychiatric treatment for psychosis. And virtually everybody gets one. And it's people are coerced into having them. There are community treatment orders which can be used to make people take these drugs, even when they're living in the community and quite well. There's actually no evidence that community treatment orders improve outcome, so forcing people to take drugs don't improve, doesn't improve the outcome. The latest outcome data on drugs is really interesting. What's happened is that people have developed, researchers have developed better techniques of looking at how the effects of these drugs. And uh, there's a remarkable discovery which seems to have not made any very little impact, so far as I can see, on psychiatric practice, and that's this. In terms of antipsychotics, there's about 20% of patients, something like that, if they take an antipsychotic during the, an acute psychotic episode, they will massively improve in a period of a few days. It's a very rapid response. If you take those people out of the picture and compare the rest to people who are just given a placebo, there's virtually no difference. So, and these drugs have horrible side effects, so they can shorten lives. So they increase the risk of heart disease, they are linked to weight gain, there's a high risk of diabetes, then there is a risk for some of these drugs of neurological difficulties. So these drugs should be used much more cautiously, I think. 25% of people get a genuine benefit from and those people, you know, there are plenty of people who will tell you that they saved their lives, and I, I believe them completely. But you can't tell who in advance is going to benefit? At the moment, we can't. So the answer would be, I was actually asked recently by a psychiatrist colleague, if I had a prescription pad, what I, what I do? And the answer is, I would say to somebody, you know, we have these drugs which might help, and the only way we can tell is by trying them. And I would recommend that, you know, I have a particular idea, a particular drug called Supride would probably be my, my first go, because it's got a quite good side effect profile. And we'd try it and we'd monitor the patient very carefully. And if that didn't work, after a couple of months, maybe see what about there's a couple of others you could try. But after a few goes, you'd have to reach the point where you say, well, actually, the drugs are not for you. They don't benefit you. And then, you know, we'd stop and try something else. My psychiatrist friend's reply was, that's completely rational. And in the best of all possible worlds, that's actually what he would do. But they never get to the last stage, and the patient is never taken off the drugs if they don't work. And one reason for that is the one which Dinesh has actually alluded to, actually, which is this whole business about risk. Um, I, you know, if you've got a prescription pad and you're responsible for patients uh, taking antipsychotics, 
a lot of practitioners, there's a palpable fear that, you know, what will happen if I take the patient off a drug and then they have a terrible psychotic episode, they go down the road and they hit somebody, maybe they might even kill somebody. I'm going to be blamed for that. So I think there is a real problem about this risk management area. But the, the scientific evidence is, is pretty simple. About a quarter of the patients get a big benefit in the drugs and most other people don't. So in order to doctors to protect themselves, you'd have to have um, a code in which you said, this is what we do, and if it's not having any benefit, we take people off, and then yeah. you'd be protected because it would be a generally accepted yeah. practice. You'd have to take them off. As I should say, just by the way, <coughs> in case anybody here is taking antipsychotics, uh, which probably an audience this size, you should, if you do take, go off drugs, it's very important to go off them very slowly under medical supervision because there's evidence if you stop them very quickly, it can actually make things a lot worse. So that's just a sort of health one. Dinesh. Can I make two points? I mean, I think certainly a knowledge of drugs and how drugs function and which brain neurotransmitters do what is very, 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 very basic. I think uh, I've just come from a conference where they were presenting some data on psychopharmacogenomics. So they've created these gene maps for patients. For over 150,000 patients, they've got the gene maps, and they can tell you that which drug would produce what side effects. And that is now being, has been taken up by 8,000 doctors in America. Now, you could equally argue that there's some kind of you know, pharmaceutical um, coup and you know, doctors being pushed into that direction, but I think in some ways, that's quite an exciting achievement because a few years ago, um, people may uh, recall the Federal Drug Authority in the United States approved an antihypertensive drug, drug for blood pressure, only for African Americans. So they're be sort of be reaching a point where there'll be more targeted, more focused um, interventions. And the second point that I want to make is about the placebo effect of certain drugs. Um, and again, there are lots of culture, cultural differences because in some societies, people prefer capsules. In others, they prefer big tablets because that is seen as more potent. In others, they see small tablets as more potent. Some like blue tablets, some like green, some like red. And we as clinicians haven't even started to explore that area. So, you know, my sort of suggestion to pharmaceutical companies would be that if you were doing a drug trial, you do need to look at all those kind of factors yeah. as well as the chemical compound. Mm. So, um, just we talk, we've talked about um, sort of extreme psychosis. What mm. about extreme mm. clinical depression? You know, how, how effective are drugs for that? Would you, mm. you know, uh, is the biological account effective um, anywhere? Yeah. So, uh, well, if we move to depression and look at the evidence for efficacy of antidepressant medication, um, you know, you can, you can see that antidepressants do work. Um, you know, about 50% of patients seem to um, get better on, on some, of the, some of the antidepressants. But Dinesh has already mentioned placebos. Uh, if you look at those trials, about 30% of patients report feeling better even though they were on the placebo. So... Um, so, so the antidepressant is recommended because it has, it has the edge over the placebo, but the placebo is still very important. And so understanding uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the psychology 
of what patients are believing that they're getting is just as important as looking at the... At the uh, but you're not allowed to trick them unless they're on a trial. Well, these are, it's not tricking, but you know, it's important that there are these randomised control trials where the clinician is blind, the patient is blind, so you can really look at the data and see... Blind, not literally. <laughs> blind. Yeah, sorry, they're sort of unaware of... Double whether blind. Well, yeah, double blind, <laughs> unaware of whether they're taking the active substance or the placebo. Um, I think if you talk to medics, I'm a psychologist, but if you talk to medics, you know, I think um, the common sense view is actually drugs are the treatment of last resort. So, um, you know, you, you put a patient onto a drug, but not because you want them to stay on it. We know that there are side effects, and Rich has described sometimes very serious side effects. So the, ide the ideal scenario is that you, if you're going to use a drug, it would be for a brief period but it's not the only avenue for treatment. And I'd like to just make sure in this discussion, we don't focus just on um, pharmacology. You know, we're also keeping in mind things like employment, you know, supported employment. Employment is good for all of us. That's where we get a lot of our sense of mental health from, is feeling that we're doing something that's valued, that we feel we're, that we belong to society. Unemployment is bad for your mental health. So, you know, just you know, thinking about supported employment schemes is probably just as important as thinking about the efficacy of drugs. But, Simon, just to chip in there, yeah. in the field of severe mental illness, drugs are the first resort, yeah. and they're very often the only resort. Yeah. And that's the problem. I agree you complete yeah. supportive employment is very helpful to people with severe mental illness, but you know, it's way down the list of priorities, usually. But increasingly, I mean, I think there is also research evidence that peer support... Yeah, uh, is incredibly important that you know patients who have been through the process mm. acting as supporters of those who are going through mm. the illness does make a lot of difference in outcomes. But the other interesting question is the differential outcomes in different cultures, and we still don't understand why that should be the case. No, so so I think what Dinesh is referring to is the fact that outcomes for severe mental illness are much better, or appear to be quite considerably better in the developing world, world where peculiarly they don't have, you know, it's sort of paradoxically you might think, they have very few psychiatrists or psychologists, and yet the outcomes are better than they are in the developed industrialised world. Why is that? Well, nobody knows. I, I mean, Dinesh is the kind of expert in the area, but I don't think anybody knows. I think there are sort of three or four possible explanations. I mean, first and foremost is family support. Um, you know, if you are living in a village and you have severe mental illness, your job is just to carry the food, lunch, from home to the field, and that's enough, and people will look after you, so you're kind of a useful member. It's also the... I mean, there really is a social acceptance. They're not ejected from the community the, as, I mean, people as, as people who are outcasts. I mean, and I'm not idealising... Uh, people do get rejected, but interesting thing is that if you are admitted to a psychiatric hospital in India, you can only be admitted if a relative is admitted with you. They will not admit you by yourself. So the relative then becomes the co-therapist, nurse, learns about side effects, learns about, um, you know, um, kind of what are the warning signs to look out for, and in a way that destigmatizes. And the other factor, I think... Should we do that? What a brilliant idea. NHS? <laughs> in this day and age? <laughs> I mean, we're lucky if we can find a bed 200 miles away, much less, you know, um, sort of bring relatives in. But 
Also, I think there's the whole idea of expressed emotion as to how yes. relatives respond to the patient. And that goes back to the social yeah. aspects, which is about you know, whether relatives are hostile or over-involved or um, you know, show lack of warmth towards the patient. So again, you know, if you're an Indian mother, you're always over-involved with your son. You know. <laughs> um, I know from personal experience. <laughs> um, and you know, it's like sort of Jewish mothers and Italian mothers. So it, it's, it's a very different way of looking at relationships. And I think there are lots of things that we can learn from you know, other cultures and how do we deal with patients. And again, if I may, going back to your public mental health perspective, I mean, one of the interesting things is that there have been some really good examples where um, school children have been taught how to identify psychosis and how to identify epilepsy. So if in their village they see somebody behaving badly, they go and tell the teacher who then does a structured assessment who would then refer them to the community midwife or community nurse or volunteer who would then refer them to primary care physician and if need be, you then at the sort of fifth, sixth level, you go and see a psychiatrist. So a lot of that gets done at a very different level. Theme three. Now our third theme, would we, if we were to imagine abandoning the biological account, would it be safe? And more important, I think, taking up your public mental health idea, what should replace it? I think perhaps we should, you know, the third theme should really be what is your ideal of what good uh, mental health practice would be like within the constraints inevitably of, a, of an always limited NHS, though until recently not as severely limited as it is now? So there are two sides to that. One is what you do with people who've developed a mental health problem and the other is what you do to try and stop people getting them in the first place. In terms of those who've developed a mental health problem, I believe that what we need is much more choice so that people should be, and we should need to listen to patients more. Um, I mean, uh, ironically, I was talking to somebody yesterday, a friend who'd had a heart attack, and I had a, 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 a sort of neurological scare about four uh, years ago, and we were comparing notes. Both of those were treated with palpable kindness and respect, in, uh, in my case in a neurology service, in my friend's case in a cardiology service, in a way which both of us as mental health professionals just don't see in mental health, and that is... You know, it's, it's paradoxical that there's less respect for people in mental health than there is in, in, in physical medicine. People need to be given choices, uh, and there needs to be emphasis on therapies other than just medication. So support and employment is a very important thing. Psychological therapies, uh, and a, a whole range of different things should be made available to people. But in terms of prevention, we need to look at the kind of world we live in, and we need to develop policies to... Uh, to, to, to uh, reduce the drivers of mental health. The drivers of mental health are migration is linked to mental health, uh, inequality is linked to mental health. There's very good evidence for all of these things. Uh, childhood uh, neglect and abuse is linked to mental health. Bullying in schools is linked to mental health. I could go on. Most of those have been changing in the wrong direction in the last 20 or 30 years. We have a more unequal world, um, we haven't done anything really, or very little, to, to, we're just waking up to the whole problem of childhood trauma, and that's largely due to the BBC more than anybody else, I think, today. Um, we, uh, you know, so bullying in schools, maybe we're beginning to address that. 
Migration, we need to understand why it is that migration is linked to mental health. A, a, a really interesting finding is that somebody belonging to an ethnic minority who lives in a predominantly white neighborhood has an increased risk of being diagnosed with schizophrenia, but somebody living in a predominantly ethnic minority neighborhood doesn't. It's something about social comparison and how you feel you fit in and so on. All these things need to be examined and we need to develop policies to, to change them. Parity of esteem has been promised. doesn't feel that way, does it? Um, well, you're right. It hasn't arrived yet. And uh, I think Richard's used the word respect, um, which I think we, sh we just need to have that very high on the agenda for, for patients who are having different experiences. Um, and he's also talked about psychological support. And at the moment, if you're, if you, if you're recommended or referred for psychological support, often it may just be six hours of, of um, brief psychological intervention. That's not even going to begin to sort of scrape the surface of what patients need. So there will be a cost, and it's just a question of whether we as a civilised society think it's a good cost for the taxpayer to support that patients, instead of being put onto drugs as the, the, the quick um, uh, treatment uh, proposal, uh, you know, also make uh, provision for, for patients to be given longer-term psychological support. It might be for a whole year, it might be even longer. But remember, when, when problems develop, it's after a whole lifetime of experiences. And sometimes it needs a bit of time and a bit of money to support the, pe the person to make sense of their situation. We still seem to be a long way away from understanding quite how much suffering mental ill health causes. And there's a, in Richard Layard's book, um, he describes, I think he describes actually Lewis Woolpit, who has always suffered acute uh, depressions, saying that when he had a broken leg and somebody accidentally slammed the car door on his broken leg, it was excruciating agony, but still nothing as bad as he had experienced from time to time in acute episodes of depression. We still seem to be a long way away from understanding that physical pain you can kind of put up with, mental pain you often really can't. How, how can we change the culture? I think the, my personal explanation is that I blame the Cartesian mind-body dualism. That, you know, mind is somewhere there and body is somewhere there and they don't seem to talk to each other. And I think we need to integrate that much more. And we need to understand that, you know, if you have physical pain, it affects your thinking. And if you are not thinking clearly, it you know, affects your bodily functions. You get tired, you can't walk, you can't do things. And the separation between psychiatry and medicine has been a major kind of cause and effect of that Cartesian mind-body dualism. And, it, what we and your specialisms, you're all in your little silos in the Maudsley separate absolutely. from the King's yep. College. Yep. No, absolutely. I mean, I, we know that if, you're, you, if you have diabetes and you become depressed, both your depression and diabetes become much more difficult to treat. You know, same with high blood pressure, same with cancer. And somehow we need to integrate physical and mental health care we need to integrate mental health and social care, and we need to integrate primary and secondary care. And I think going back to uh, Richard's point about you know, who holds that together, at the moment nobody is. And you know, politicians are very interested in singing kind of <coughs> suitable hymns to parity of esteem. 
I mean, it's the kind of thing that nobody would disagree with. But, you know, they're not doing anything about it. In fact, they cut the tariff for mental health. Exactly. And, you know, why should a patient with mental illness die 10 to 15 years younger than somebody who doesn't have mental illness? It should be human rights-based parity, and now this government is telling us that they want to abolish Human Rights Act. Is it because people think, really, not much can be done? You can fix the broken leg, you can do amazing heroic surgery to mend all kinds of things that used to be irreparable, but mental health seems to be behind in terms of definite, clear, good outcomes. For per per NHS pound, does mental health provide as much alleviation of suffering as physical health? I think it does. I mean, I think for me, the kind of turning point and a tipping point was uh, in June 2013, when 26 MPs stood up in the House of Commons and talked about their personal psychiatric illnesses. I mean, until then, I would see them privately, and they'll all talk about it, but not publicly. And I think that made it clear that there is an issue. Did you get them to do it? I, I'm not directly, but you know, I've just blackmailed them. But uh, I think that made a lot of difference in terms of uh, acknowledging that these high-functioning individuals have had alcohol problems, have had depression, have had postnatal depression, you know, and they would then talk about their family members who may be having dementia and so on and so forth. So, you know, those are the kinds of things we need more of and people standing up and saying, yeah, you know, I'm functioning well, and this is about advocacy. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.